wait, wait. What do you mean? Like, should I be more lively? Yeah, do it again. Okay. Welcome to another episode of PH Divas. We're... Don't give me your sexy voice. Oh, why can't I be sexy? Well, I need you to try if you're actually being sexy. Welcome to... <laughs> that's, wait, your sexy, that's your sexy. That's your sexy. Yes. Oh, God. Welcome to another episode of PH Divas. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I'm your co-host, Dr. Zain Yao, representing the humanities. I'm the sexy STEM PhD diva, Liz Wayne. Oh God, we can't do this. <laughs> wow, that's a, that sounds very natural. You sound you sound fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I felt like people needed something special, you know? Yeah, I mean, also because it's been a while since they've heard from both of us. and You want to try one more time? Okay. Oh, do or we, this is probably just our intro, right? Yeah, that probably also just works. I mean, like, people know us. Like, we're, we're messy in a lovely way. Should yeah. we give updates on yeah. life and stuff? We and... should probably give updates. Like I, in the last, in our last episode, I did have something at the beginning where I explained like you were about to give this TED talk and stuff like that. So I, was, I made sure to try and like share that those updates through our social media stuff. But people miss you. Oh, people, people miss me. Of course, <laughs> I'm, I'm the, I'm the lost child, the, the lost diva, the diva who lost her crown and couldn't find her way. Well. But at the same time, with all the awesome stuff you're doing, it was really like you're accumulating more crowns. But but I only have one head. Mm, but that's why you you're in science to to grow more heads. Do you have mm. Do you have the technology? That sounds expensive. Mm. Yeah. Um, I am happy to be back. I have been working on science, doing writing some papers, um, applying for jobs, doing some really cool stuff, giving talks in places, and underestimating how much work that actually takes. Uh Like, seriously. So, hopeful to talk more about that and, you know, being a little more transparent about the struggle of trying to do all the things you're really excited about doing and like, and share along in that journey. So I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. Excited about the fact that very soon we're going to turn into pH professors. Wait, no. Professor Divas. <laughs> very soon. This is very exciting. Yeah. I guess like maybe we should even have that as, as its own episode or should this be the episode where we talk about it? No, we can we can probably list out what we want to do in the episode. Um, I actually don't know where I'm going to be. Okay. And likewise, I well had a had a busy month, and so uh, an update that I've been sitting on uh, that we haven't shared with our listeners since the summer is that I'll be heading to England. Woo! Yeah. To London. Scones and tea. Earl Grey tea for life. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll be at University College London, which is going to be really exciting. And it feels oddly appropriate in some ways because, like, part of my family history started with my great grandfather getting on a boat and thinking he was going to San Francisco at the, begin- at the turn of the century. And then he ended up in Liverpool. That's like a reverse Christopher Columbus. Yeah, because there's a lot of con- a lot of confusion. Um, You're yeah. like, this is not India. What is happening? Yeah, and like not so much colonizing as the result of colonization, but yeah. Yes. And so I am coming coming from the colonies, doubly colonized through by way of Hong Kong and Canada, coming to the UK to teach the English literature. To the English. Yes. Oh, that's what you meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah, which I feel <laughs> like it seems like a delicious irony, but it's also really exciting it's my when I told my mom um, her comments was that she's really happy I was going to be a place where she wasn't going to have to worry about me being shot Ooh. yeah yeah I mean that's real 
but also really sad to hear. Yeah. yeah, like I didn't know that was that was something that she had been so worried about um, about me being in the states. <sighs> so, what are the uh, stereotypical things about University City? A university College London, or yes. are you talking about university? university? Col- I always want to say University City, University College of London. Um, what should we expect from you? That's well, a I'm bad. Not- I British think, accent? Oh, yes. I'll be slowly morphing and I'll be like Britney or Madonna. And yeah, I, I think. Are they British? No, no. But remember there was this phase where like Britney started adopting a British accent for some reason. And then Madonna was like married to Guy Ritchie for a while. And then she also started adopting a British accent. And people were sort of skeptical as to whether, you know, is it really because of being immersed in the UK or is it just sort of a, an affectation? Mm, those two pages in history are stuck together. Yeah. Uh, but at UCL, it's I think it's going to be really exciting. It's located right in the heart of downtown London in the Bloomsbury district, which is pretty famous, especially if you do literature, because that's where like a lot of the British modernists came out of, like Virginia Woolf, the Bloomsbury group. Um, it's right next to the British Library and the British Museum. Uh, UCL is considered like uh, one of the top schools in the UK after Oxford and Cambridge and has the reputation for being one of the most liberal of the institutions, because I think a lot of the other uh, London universities, like King's or Queen Mary, like they're all like in the title even, or imperial, like they have in the very name that there is some connection to like royalty or hierarchy. So University College mm-hmm. London, I think like it sort of declared like this not wasn't like tied to the monarchy in the same way. And so it has a more okay. yeah, liberal history, uh, philosophy, Jeremy Bentham went there and his corpses actually there and sitting there it's a very famous thing so i'm gonna get to see his his corpse like that was actually i think a request that he made that he wanted his body like preserved and like staying in the school um all right i think as for cornell's at cornell so okay yeah i guess yeah um it's gonna be really exciting and i'm really lucky that i have friends already there i actually know more people in london than i do did in vancouver when i uh when i came here but the, UK, wow. but the UK academia is very different. And again, I'm lucky that I have friends that were able to, I was able to consult, which is, um, which of course helped me get the job. But I know that there's so many other nuances, everything from like grading to the way that courses work, the way that research is evaluated are all completely different. And I'm going to have to figure out this new system. Like for example, the, the titles are different. So like in the US and Canada, typically it's, assistant professor, associate, and then full. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the UK, professor means full professor, typically. Oh, so where do you now? What would you, what is your intro title? A, a lecturer. Yeah. Okay. And so lecturer is the same thing as tenure track assistant professor. But what is funny, because then lecturer in North America usually means that like you teach, but you don't research. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of interesting. It's sort of uneven because, like, I think in Australia and New Zealand, for instance, they still retain, like, the UK structure of lecturer, and then there's sometimes a position called reader or senior lecturer mm-hmm. and then professor. What's a reader? A reader? So oh, this is also what I'm trying to figure out. Like, in some cases, reader is, like, the position after lecturer, but sometimes they just call it senior lecturer. And so it doesn't seem like all UK universities use the term reader and i've also heard that um uk universities are actually thinking of changing to the north american system system of assistant associate in full because it is more internationally uh legible but yeah and also they don't have tenure in the uk which is going to be a big shift what does that really mean i mean in terms of your career yeah so my understanding is like so the first three years that i'm there is I'll be on like probation and then after the three years I'll get it as a regular permanent job and so my understanding is like on the one hand there aren't the protections the absolute protections of tenure or like at least the supposed protections because as we've been seeing in North America the way that those get applied right. are totally uneven but instead uh, but also like the tenure process in North America is such a huge build up and you have to um and it becomes so polemical in a lot of ways. But instead, this is seems to be a very diff- a different system where the probation is that you do your job and you, you know, you do your job and then you get a, like a regular permanent job after three years. Do you feel less? Do you does that make you feel differently about 
your first three years than you would have, say, if you were at a American institution? Um, I think so. Like, I'm still trying to make sure that I'm still going to be able to meet expectations and so forth. But on the one hand, of course, time to tenure after you're hired in, as an assistant professor is usually like, what, five or six years? And mm-hmm. So initially, like hearing that there's only three years <clears throat> for probation is sort of, I think, creates a certain amount of panic because then you think like, oh, I have to get everything done in three years that I do in the normal tenure track time. But my understanding is it doesn't work like that. And so I guess the way I'd, be, I'd still approach it is trying to be as productive as possible, but I'm not going to be treating the three-year deadline um, the way that I'd, I'd treat having to go up for tenure in the same amount of time. So for instance, like with my, my book manuscript, I'm not going to panic unnecessarily about getting everything done by the three years. Like I'm going to make sure that I take that time to do the best work I can rather than being forced to do a rush job. Mm. Yeah. That sounds exciting. I'm still most excited about the scones though and the tea. Oh yes. Cause you, you really like scones and tea and like Thai tea. Really do. Yeah, because you told me you keep telling me about this in New York like City, the right? Idea that when I order tea, scones come with that. Mm, bonus. I just, I just enjoy that. You know, like a warm scone with some butter and some jam, or like some clotted cream. Yes, very British. Devonshire clotted cream, no less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's good. It's. My family is really looking forward to it. It's been once. (laughs) Yeah. So my mother actually spent her um, part of her childhood in England, or in her phrasing, she says she came to the age of reason in England. So she has very fond memories of being in England. And so the whole family is really excited about being able to come and visit me. Um, Yeah, everyone wants to visit you now. I know. And like, what's what is also nice is like, obviously, London is such a major world city that I'm hoping that all my friends at some point are going to have to come through and visit because yeah hint hint Liz I can't tell if you're looking at me I am yeah at the moment we're in a very asymmetrical uh, relationship right now because I'm recording in the studio at UBC on the ancestral traditional and territory of Musqueam people and there's no webcam but I can see Liz yeah so she watched me eat my cookie in a very seductive manner context she have a maple cookie (laughs) And I really enjoy. And I was just licking the cookie. I don't know why I have sound. And she was just watching me. And I didn't realize that she could watch me. You know? So and I, I thought was she kind was putting of on a show a for me. And my desire for that cookie. It was delicious, by the way. Oh, it I don't really doubt it. Maple cookies are amazing. Thank you, Erica, for introducing me to them. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, I'm really excited about you starting a faculty job and really being able to, in some ways, document that process, you know, going from the graduate student to the postdoc and then talking about that transition of being the hashtag new prof. Oh, yes. It's going to be really exciting. Yeah. And same for you, too. And I think, like, it's sort of funny to see in retrospect, like, we started this podcast in such a position of... I think vulnerability because like we're ABD we don't know we didn't know what we're going to do we didn't know if we're going to succeed in academia didn't necessarily even know if you want to continue the first episode was like I am not staying Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh god I was like so adamant about that like I'm going where I'm valued and Mm -hmm. I guess that's so true I'm going where I'm valued definitely and like I think what's also funny is like like, we didn't cut any of those early episodes where all that sort of, like, uncertainty and messiness, because we weren't sure who's going to even listen to us. But what's been funny oh, is, yeah. like, in the last month where Liz and I were, like, traveling to give talks and stuff like that, like, there'd be people that we've never met that would come up to us and be like, yeah, I, I listen to PhDivas. Thank you for this work. And I'd be like, oh, my God, people listen to us. Yeah. You know, people are like, your voice sounds very familiar. And I'm like... I just spoke <laughs> like, no, no, no. From the internet <laughs> and people wanting a picture. That was really kind of interesting to see the, the impact. Yeah. I feel work. It makes me feel well, really, really happy to be honest. It's just like, like sometimes you just, don't, well, for me at least, I don't know about the impact of my research or like 
if what I'm doing is helping people, but it's suddenly getting this confirmation that this work that we're doing that we started for fun and not knowing where it would go, like has made a real impact for people. So uh, one of one of the things, one of the encounters I had was at uh, the conference of the uh, Society of 19th Century Americanists. And I met Amy, hey Amy, who's at Brown. And she came up to me and said like, oh, I lo- I'm a big fan of Page Divas. And she said that she was listening to one of our, our earlier episodes about advice to like earlier grad students. Mm-hmm. And that inspired her to reach out to the first years in her program at Brown and Performance Studies to help them with their papers for their first papers. Is that helpful? Yeah. And she said like they were really, really grateful, but she wouldn't have like thought about being in the position that to be able to help graduate students earlier in her program had she not listened to our episode. And I was like, oh, my God, we managed to make something good in the world that has managed to make other good things like that. That felt very validating. Hmm. You know, I... I'm really curious about what the impact is for STEM, from a STEM side. Sometimes I get these vibes from other faculty that um, the PhD is like, from like, is not counted as valid work. Mm. Or sometimes they'll say, "Oh, you're that blogger," and I'm like, "I'm not a blogger." Uh-huh. <laughs> and you know, this—it's just kind of like a weird context sometimes. So it does get, it is kind of interesting. I think the STEM, STEM field still has a ways to go in really acknowledging the, the value of doing this kind of work. That's interesting. Or, and also in, a, in like an integrated way, not in an othering kind of way, as in some people do science communication, but they're not real scientists. Mm. so so the places and the spaces where it does become acceptable or like they almost like cut that out and like oh but that's not they're not like rising stars they're not big they're not going to be they're not going to faculty positions or something they're they're doing this to angle for a career outside of real science i guess that's so interesting to hear because so uh, I also gave um, a talk on this panel for the public humanities. And mm-hmm. one part I was talking about is that science communication is so much better organized than any sort of public humanities initiative. Like mm-hmm. the fact that there is a hashtag sci- SciComm, for instance, mm-hmm. and there's like a number, there's quite a few both blogs and podcasts mm-hmm. and everyone's doing a lot of really great work. But And things seem to be much more organized. There's whole networks. Like we've, uh, last month we got featured by the, I think the, the network for concerned scientists that's doing really interesting activist work. But, anyways, things just seem much more organized. Whereas in the p- humanities, like there's not even like a hashtag for it. But then it, it's one of those things where I wonder, like, are we lacking that because we don't need it to the same extent? But at the same time, by not making it explicit the way that um, you guys do, we also are lacking a type of structure and like, and perhaps more deliberative, collective effort. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Well, one, it's it. interesting that you say you don't need it because I think you can make very good arguments for people needing to understand the value of humanities because now, at least in the U.S., they do not. That's very true. And or you like see that just don't care, when people, so. not only on the government level, don't want to fund the arts and humanities, but when people don't want to get degrees in them or when they can't get jobs, and so we actually need to have a better do a better job of explaining it and even question the idea when someone does think to themselves, oh, STEM needs to communicate humanities. We don't because we already, why do you think that? Is it because you already do or because you think if you don't get it, you don't get it? And the other thing that's interesting is, the second thing is the idea about the structure of science communication because you could also argue that there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of activity, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if there's a lot of structure oh, to really? that activity. In a lot of ways, it's a lot of people trying to start their own things from the ground up, but there is no, like, like when I think of structure, there might be, like, let's say, like, a set of guidelines for how do you do this? How do you go about this? Is there a pipeline for the career? Are there standards? And that doesn't really happen. What happens is people, one person will get really good at it, and maybe they'll talk to their friends, and then they're good at it. 
Mm-hmm. And then other people either just don't engage at all because they don't think they need to, they don't value it, or other people are trying and they're not good at it. I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. It just feels like there's a lot happening, but I'm not sure. I think they could use some organization in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I really admire is that, say, like there's such lively hashtags for hashtag Black and STEM. There's also now like hashtag Native and STEM, Latinx and STEM. And those are individual people who do not get paid for this work mm, yeah. or value for the work that they're doing, right? Yeah. So it's not like like those things are people who aren't really getting jobs in academia, who mm. are who are really struggling with trying to be valued, and they don't make fun, they don't make money off of these platforms, and they're really doing it, and they're they're trying it out as they go. That does remind so me how... So they have them, but yeah. still not. I was going to say how... It reminds me of a comment that Chanda keeps making, which is that people think seem to think that like fame on Twitter or getting a verified account translates to some type of power, but it really doesn't. And it's mm-hmm. in practice, but like increased vulnerability. Like, yes, you have a platform, but, that, but people don't understand that it doesn't translate to the benefits and privileges that people think it does. And it's certainly not the case that more follows, like, you get a check for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Twitter doesn't get a, I mean, they're still having a hard time making money from this model, right? Mm-hmm. It's more vulnerability. It's more opening up to trolls. It's more work because even not counting the kind of activity that you don't want, like, say, from a troll, there are also people who just now see you and then want your time and attention and and it's hard to turn them away when they're asking you for help or like they're talking about depression or not fitting into their program. So that's a lot of emotional labor. You're mentoring students you've never even met who are not even your part of the country or the world. And they're depending on you as if you were in the same room. Mm-hmm. So it's a labor of love, but it is also labor. Yeah. I also want to give a shout out for another hashtag that I think has been really awesomely successful last year, the the site Black Women. The the Twitter Oh ca- yeah. Yeah, the Twitter account has been amazing. They've just they seem to be just doing such a fantastic job of like really raising voices, including Liz's. Um Yeah. Yeah. That's been that's you been know really what? Cool I think work. we should add like a shout out section. Or mm-hmm. like a like this is what we're doing. This is what we have been noticing in academia. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> um, like the um, this is going off topic of the site Black Women, which you guys should absolutely look at and follow on Twitter. But um, the inside higher education mishaps and the Washington USA Today post about food insecurity and stating that uh, homosexuals and bisexuals are food insecure because they spend too much time canoodling, cavorting, as hell? he calls it. I did not see that. Oh, yeah. this is there. I mean, the only good thing about this article is that it had opinion written on it. But When did this come out? Uh, last week. And then oh Sarah God. Goldrick... It's funny because I see her name all the time and I... Don't really ever think about saying it out loud. Sarah Goldrick Rabb. Oh, yes. I recognize that. Um, who actually does a lot of work on college homelessness and uh, food hunger issues among college students was talking about this. But this a really, really inappropriate USA Today article came out that was just misappropriating facts about what food insecurity is and attributing things to where they don't belong god it's it's amazing like i guess as we're talking about well communication both for stem and humanities and academia in general with even with those platforms like the rampant ignorance like it just shows that like ignorance is not passive it has a structure it has a force has a history it's ignorance is not passive Mm -hmm. bam yeah i yeah Ignorance is not passive, and I think that we need a we need a cultural literacy. I think we're having these discussions with people who are not on the same page, and it's not to say that someone is not inherently intelligent, but if you don't understand the literature, 
of the field that's happened before. And then you just kind of jump in at the end and want to say something, you know, and then you're mad that people pointed out mm-hmm. like, that's not fair. It's not, that's not what's really happening. You don't know what you're talking about. You think your opinion should be just as important as the actual information. And you're mad about it. And that's America today, apparently. But we need a more scientifically literate community. We need a more, I'm not, I'm looking for the word, but like a more socially literate community. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens when you don't have that. And it's funny that even with the increase of, again, like the increase of platforms and say like having, say so many women in academia available through social media to try and do that type of work, which of course is more of this unpaid emotional labor translated to digital sphere. Like it has also made that there's even more dudes or Twitter eggs yelling at them that they don't know what they're talking about, even though they're, even though these women are the ones with their PhDs. Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's sort of funny that, yeah, no, this is it's just that the irony is just too it's kind of sickening. Right. It's funny, but nobody's laughing. Yeah. It's like, wait, we're actually crying. Yeah, we're laughing through the tears. Laughing through. But, yeah. But in the positive There's tons of problems. Yeah. Tons I, I, of problems with this. But they all come back to the same point that there are guidelines for talking about issues. There are. There are structures, there is there's history, and there is context to things. And when you lose that context and try to make claims based on that, you're going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and then when those get amplified, we should probably take a better interest in trying to not amplify things that are not fact-checked, <laughs> which goes to another topic recently happening with Sally Cohn and... Uh, Amatel, and I'm going to butcher her name. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, but also, like, I, I think it's also the problem that we're so used to seeing certain names or words written but never heard. So. Amatel, so. Yeah. Oh, is it the thing that you retweeted yeah. from um, uh, Ijeoma? About how she got miscited in that book? Is that, the, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, there's a it's a longer discussion. Maybe it's better for people to read it because I can't actually eloquently conclude it right now. But um, fact checking is important. Part of what's coming out of that conversation, not just about the fact that there might have been some misquoting, but what is the rigor that's required when you write a book? Mm-hmm. What is your obligation to make sure that the quotes you have are right? Um, that things you said were accurate because people are going to take books and we usually look at books and say, those are valid. Those are solidified. They've been background checked and we, we, we take them as somehow meaning more than let's say like a, a blog or something that's published online or a magazine, even in print. And so there's a real danger to not considering these things, not fact checking, not having editorial insight, Mm-hmm. Not thinking about what we're promoting. Yeah, and I think it's very perverse for for me as someone in a discipline which is very you, your reputation is so based on the book, and mm-hmm. academic like academic publishing is in a in a terrible state. Like people don't make money; it's a real struggle. It's mm-hmm. and so for junior scholars like myself, um, part of the hustle is not just is your work good enough? Is it good enough? for a press that's not going to make money off of it to try and make a gamble mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. And and that's the challenge. And, like, I've been meeting with editors, and, like, everyone's been very supportive, at least, of what I've been able to share initially. And so they're like, okay, well, please send your stuff along for the next stage. But they've also been very frank about the lack of funds. Like, there was actually this whole – they had this whole Mellon grant for a number of, of university presses for NYU and a number of other ones for the American Literature Initiative where they helped – they got additional funding to help them support – new scholarship but that fund dried up just a couple years ago and so one of the editors has told me it's like now we have to be we just don't have the money to publish very many people so things are just even harder now and so it's sort of which is crazy because publishing is a part of getting tenure yeah (laughs) yeah like it's a huge it feels like an ethical conflict to me when the financial reason is barring your 
publication of something that is actually a requirement for your job. Mm-hmm. And what's also weird is like not the quality of the work rate. Definitely. And so it's not just about quality, but so many other factors. And another thing I hadn't been as aware of, like there's this thing called subvention funds, which are about mm-hmm. three. Yeah, I didn't, I'd seen the term. Subvention funds is. Sorry? You should go ahead and explain what subvention funds so are. So subvention funds are funds from your institution that can help the publishers cover the costs of that publication. Mm-hmm. And so, but that really varies from institution. Images. Yeah, because like the, getting image product, uh, permissions is extremely expensive, for instance. And one thing I hadn't really thought about is like there's, Apparently, there's not many as many subvention uh, funds in the UK, for instance, because like the education system is all public and the funding system works differently. And so that might be something that could count against mm-hmm. me that just in terms of like the gambles, not just the quality of my work, but like I. Yeah, that it comes down to to about how much money the press can afford to lose, which seems. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's all these other considerations at play behind the illusion of academia's meritocracy. Yes. We should do another episode on funding, yes. actually. Oh, and I'm going to have to learn but this whole I... new funding system in the UK, but anyway. Hmm. I've been learning so much about funding, and one of the things that's coming out to me is that the, a lot of institutions that are very, a lot of institutions that are very successful at funding are doing a lot of things internally to ensure the success of their faculty mm-hmm. so it is not simply that um you know professor x is really good and then they is so they are it's just in addition to that they they've got a staff that helps them find grants they've got a staff that helps them manage the and i'm i am talking i'm talking about stem and I know that some of this extrapolates to the humanities in terms of the offices and the, the, the systems that I know of. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of resources out there that people use to help you be more successful on the funding level nationally. And when I think about the kind of institutions that can afford those resources versus those that don't, it really is an unlevel playing field because it says if you're not from an institution that can afford to have an office dedicated to helping you, you may not be that successful because your grant just won't look as like nicely rounded as theirs does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like resources are so cumulative. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a, Perfect design summary. (laughs) (laughs) Resources are cumulative. (laughs) No, but it's it's so true. Mm -hmm. It's so true. The difference between having an office that will help you find ways to get those subvention funds versus trying to do it all on your own. Having an office that like double checks and makes sure that everything looks correct. That will help you with grant writing. Um, that helps you provide you like small internal grants so that you can do research as unfunded that will and get results that will then allow you to be more mm-hmm. successful at the R level. That's really important. Yeah. And that's why to come to an, a labor issue that we talk about quite frequently is like, that's why contingent faculty adjuncts, like you get, people get trapped because Mm-hmm. You just don't have access to the same resources as well as like completely having all your time and energy depleted. Right. Uh, in, in addition, like you're also lacking structural resources on so many different levels, which include, mm-hmm. include things like this. Oh yeah. And so when you really think about the opportunities and you ever factor in like, but this person has this workforce that they at their fingertips and this person doesn't, And I don't know what to really do about that. I think in particular, because it's all lumped into one at some point, like, like it's not really easy to separate what that person did from what the, the resources they have. Definitely. People still want to think like, this is a self-made academic, oh, it's their genius. But it's important to at least, to at least keep this in mind. Mm -hmm. It, It really is. 
and maybe even for people who are being hired to a place under to when they're comparing people to think about what institution they come from and what resources they may or may not have and to consider that potential to be more to level the playing field mm-hmm. as in they can do what they can do when they get there and how the resources consider what they can do with the resources you have now, given what they've done with the resources they have before. Definitely. I, I don't know, but it's, it's something that I think about and, um, and very grateful for having access to and simultaneously like, wow, other people don't get this. Yeah, it sort of puts a different spin on when people um, use the word resourceful, right? <laughs> yes. Hey, bring in the language. <laughs> you bring in all the... <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> what, okay, I also... Um, we, Liz and I had this fascinating conversation before we started recording where um, Liz taught me about hysteresis and I taught her about historicity because I thought when she's saying hysteresis, she's saying historicity. Which mm-hmm. and ended up being like these really interestingly like congruent concepts, even though they come from like historicities from the humanities, historicities from Liz's world. She's actually like tr- showing me this graph to try and describe how she's feeling about how exhausted she was after the work that she did last month. And yes, Zach was a really interesting moment that sadly I'm sorry we did not capture for you. <laughs> yeah, but I have this habit of explaining myself in terms of physical properties that I learned about in college. So that's how I get super nerdy with my friends. And I was describing the, the kind of stress I was feeling and how after a stressful month, I thought that once I completed all the things on my list that I would feel better. And I didn't really feel like I didn't go back to baseline. I was kind of thinking about this as a hysteresis curve of stress and, um, so then that led to trying to explain design. Well, what is hysteresis? And then I showed her the, the graph and then that led to like, Oh, let's look at the definition. And then she thought of something and seeing how that connected with her actual research. That was very cool. Yeah. That was a really cool moment. This was the real like um, STEM humanities divide crossing moments of like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, this is like how we can learn from each other. It was really cool. Yeah. And then it stopped raining, and then the fog lifted, the and then birds were chirping, and there's a rainbow somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've talked a lot about my hashtag new prof stuff, but I guess because your stuff is more in flux, you might not want to go into it as much. But is there well, Also, I think you deserve your own podcast episode. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> you deserve this. Oh. Well, sound effects you deserve dun, dun, this dun. you can do this this is this is your it's your time london calling <laughs> yeah yeah i and actually i need to start making up a list of ways to um insult you for being a british person now that's fair i mean yeah that's that's a loaded history right there and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really interesting teaching American literature in the UK. Oh, no, I mean cheeky UK. things. Oh. You know? Like, I just want to talk about your bad beer and... Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even drink beer, so it's fine. You could go ahead and insult it. It'll be like, oh, but my God, I'm looking forward to... get there. Scotch. I love scotch. I'm so looking forward to get going on scotch tours. Mmm. Yum. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just thought about what your Instagram feed is going to look like now. Instead of just uh, scotch instead of ice cream? No, there'll still be ice cream. Yesterday, I was telling my friends, like, oh, I really hope that I make friends there and I find people. And they thought I was going to say something, like, have similar values to me. I was like, I really hope I'm going to find people who also like food, especially ice cream, and will eat it with me. <laughs> Those are real-life goals. I like it. Also, the rent the rental market is not fun. Like, friends have been joking. It's like, oh, Vancouver wasn't expensive enough for you. You have to go to a city where it's even worse. But... Mm. And also, one thing I have to say, like, I, I don't mean to complain about this part, but... Since this is something I've been sort of sitting on because, like, there's so many details that had to be worked up. But for the last year, people have been really happy for me. And almost every week, if not several times a week, um, a friend will ask, so are you excited about moving to England? And eventually, as it will, now my answer is like, yes, in theory, but it's, it's impossible to be excited every day for an entire year. <laughs> perpetually excited yeah. yes because i i think of like all the logistics 
of the moving of the adjusting and so forth and it's like this is a it's an adventure but it's an adventure i'm gonna have to live that's gonna be my life and so there's a sort of balance of both the gratitude of a, such an amazing exciting opportunity and but also with like i don't know yeah. where i'm gonna get my and there's a bit of performance in there yes yeah you have to per- perform happiness because that's what people want want from you and yeah you have to be grateful. And I imagine there's the multiple emotions going on. There's one where you're really happy. You feel relief for getting a job. You feel guilt for getting a job. Yes. Um, you don't necessarily want to talk about your happiness because there's so many people in your circle who don't have a job. Yes. And then you really are moving again. So you don't know how to deal with, because of your good news, it's hard to talk to people about having good news, about having bad anxiety inducing moments that are related to your good news because there's always this comparison well at least you have a job right Mm -hmm. that's so it's like you don't get to do perform anything but happiness even though it's very stress inducing and you are moving to a different country again and you are (laughs) working out a housing system and visa and silent yeah starting a job of your life but also starting a new old aspect of your life no, like doing new things all the time kind of can get old no that's totally you totally captured it and i think like that's the survivor's guilt thing is is quite real and i think that what's also sort of what sort of makes it come out i think even more strongly is that because i'm doing my postdoc at ubc as opposed to cornell so the people who know me at ubc don't know the like my, my friends that i came out of cornell that were also my colleagues and so people who don't know that context are really happy for me and like the phrase that often gets used is like well of course you'll you would make it or mm. is often what people say and i know that at people UBC, s- cornell um i guess at, at ubc but like maybe more generally like that's often a phrase that people use i think in academia when you, people manage to get this to this point it's like of mm-hmm. course we always knew that you were going to do it and so I know this well-intentioned, but it tends to then ascribe this type of, like, determinism about it. But also, what does it say about the people who are still struggling or people yeah. who made other decisions? And that is sort of hard for me to – it's hard for me to hear because I usually say, like, I have all these friends that you don't know who are probably better researchers and maybe right. better teachers who work harder. And that's also difficult. But then friends – yeah. the hierarchical – texture of what they're saying so the marathon when they say of course you're getting it they're implicitly saying that people who don't get it deserve that and it's not a position you want to have yeah like you want to just have a job and have the job but there's inherently this kind of hierarchy like yeah this idea that you are always going to be successful because you were a chosen one yeah or a phrase that another friend um used was that he sort of joked like oh well, if Zion is able to make it, then there's, there's hope for us. And he sort of called us me like the canary in the coal mine, mm-hmm. which if people are not as familiar with the metaphor, like when miners used to go. Um, We've into... seen the Hunger Games. We're good. Okay. Okay. I can't, I can't no, remember. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Say it. Oh, well, that basically people would bring in canaries because they would be the first ones that would be able to detect gas. And that's how you know that there's danger. But then that made me sort of think of the whole metaphor is like, am I then also giving people the sort of hope to go into dangerous situations that they may not survive? kind of thing that's deep i know you should be drinking more beer uh, yes more something but i will <laughs> say that my friends also gave me a very a productive way to, to look at it which is like you've been given an opportunity that's really amazing yes and would other people be able to do as much with it as you can do especially given the work that i have done in the past and i'm trying to do in terms of trying to make academia a better place that's not just about my own research I think um, dealing with survivor's guilt is very important and talking about being able to talk about how you really feel about how about, about your job is important. You need that release because if you don't, it's going to go somewhere. I have found that having the, like the people who matter to me the most, like having their blessing has been very important for me. And and in this context, I'm talking about are those group of researchers who I went to school with, who I really value and admire and feel like they could have been such great scientists, you know, Mm -hmm. and the people who in my head, I thought if they can make it, I can make it. Or if they don't make it, I don't know 
what's wrong with this world. You know, we all kind of have those people in our minds. And for some people, I am that person. But, you know, for me, I also have those people in my life. And it has been very healing to kind of have their blessing as I move forward and and to remind me not to feel guilt around getting to do this job because, you know, at the end of the day, I still also have to do the job. And that is, like, stressful enough. Mm-hmm. People find their way. But I do know that it's stressful enough and it's guilt-inducing enough the choices that we'll have to make once we have academic positions that to really add on that extra burden daily, you know, to compound it like that of the guilt of other people who didn't make it is just, I mean, like almost unbearable. But I do find I have, for me, I found that being able to tell people I feel guilty has been helpful because it's not that it changed anything. It's not as if I turned down the job or, or I ever stopped doing any of the things I enjoyed doing. But it helped me say, you know, I acknowledge this system is kind of flawed. I acknowledge, like, the hustle. I'm excited. I'm happy. And I'm also guilty. Mm-hmm. I just find it helpful because it also allows the people in my community to to either, like, feel the guilt, feel the jealousy. I get that a lot, too. Do people ever tell you they're jealous of you? Yes. Yeah, I've gotten that. It's so weird to saying. I, I mean, I, it's weird in how they say it. Mm-hmm. They're like, by the way, I'm also crazy jealous of you. And you make me wish I feel like I should be working harder. Oh. And I've never tried to do something to make someone work harder. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. If anything, I spend my free time talking about how I need to sleep, take my meds, go to the gym, eat vegetables and stretch. Right. That's my <laughs> list of goals mm-hmm. for April. If anything, we should be having a larger conversation about jealousy. I think it can be healthy. I just think we need to talk about it and guilt and shame around our jobs. Ooh, that'll be, we should definitely do an episode on that. That'll be really interesting. We should definitely do an episode specifically around that. Mm -hmm. Or like the seven, like the other deadly sins or something. I don't know. How do you respond when people say they're jealous? I don't know what the appropriate social response is. Well, I mean, you know me, so I kind of just say things and like, you're going to deal with it. Um, The last time someone sent me a message and said that they were really jealous of me, I just said, listen, this is how my life has actually been in the last five years. And I told them all the horrible stuff that happened to me that like they had no idea. Mm. And I said, I just, you know. I, I under and I told them that I understood the spirit of what they were saying, but this wasn't, but really like you should be, I shouldn't be your metric for success is what I said. Ooh, that's a nice way of putting it. I'll definitely, I shouldn't that. be your metric for success, particularly if we don't even have the same goals and you don't really know what I've gone through or the amount of failure that I've experienced to, to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then also going like, thank you for acknowledging the work that I've done and being a part of my journey. Because quite often these are people who are coming from a, these are people who I've known, like maybe we went to school together and either high school or undergrad, grad school or people from my hometown. And I value that connection because they knew me at a time that, you know, like you, you can't always take everybody with you at every single journey. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm also a different person at each part of the journey. So people who knew me from Mississippi aren't going to see me the same way as someone who only met me after I was in Philly or only in grad school, right? The same way your UBC friends don't know you in the context of your graduate student experience. So I just remind people of that with the intention of trying to encourage them to be more broad about how they think about themselves and their goals. And it's like, if you want this, then you, then let's, then try it. And I'll support you and do that too. Wow, that's great. Now that was a long response. It always takes a lot of time. So I don't do that with everyone. Mm-hmm. If I don't really know you that well, it's like, thank you. Yeah. That's mostly what I've been doing. Cause I don't know how to articulate anything beyond that, but also I'm quite tired. So, but honestly, but don't do it for everyone. Do it for when, when it matters to me because 
I often will hear people say things like, you never need to justify yourself to anyone. Don't explain. I think women get a lot of slack for explaining things, right? It's always seen of like you have, don't have confidence or something. That's mm-hmm. weird. Kind of like you, you explain too much. You, you're asking for permission. I was like, I'm not asking you for permission. I'm just telling you what I'm doing and I'm explaining why I'm doing it. And I do that for certain people because there's some people I actually do want to understand how I feel. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not, I, I'm not an island. And so, you know what? I want my mother to understand what I'm feeling. I want my friend to understand that the things that we joke about are actually a little hurtful because I expect them to respond. All right. This person I don't, I barely know on the street. All right, cool. Thank you. Or even if it's a friend that I really enjoy, but like, listen, I'm tired. Let's talk about this tomorrow or next week. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to address it at some point. Yeah. This is also, I think, well, I don't want to take it the tangent too far off, but like the question that I keep on having with, with friends or like I'm also trying to help with friends is like, when do you engage to let someone know that they're being racist but that's that is a huge conversation right there (laughs) we don't have time for that right now i mean honestly just that's a google search too we are not the first people we're not the last people that will ever do that and it's always complicated because you care about those people because we work with them you know if anything no one should ever walk into that conversation thinking it's going to be a one-time thing or you're going to have like the perfectly perfectly constructed sentence that will give them their aha moment. Mm-hmm. Like that's actual work that will take multiple sessions. Oh, that's so exhausting. But maybe this is a good point. Well, not exactly a good point to wrap up, but yeah. We've been talking for over an hour, so. No, wrap it up. Okay, let's wrap it up. <laughs> Dr. Yao, this has been very uh, professorial, very informative, very sensual, because we talked about our feelings. Mm-hmm. I'm all about the feelings. <laughs> That's what I work on. And I was, we were professing to each other um, mm-hmm. as hashtag new prof on the cusp of stuff. And, of course, we will have yeah. an upcoming es- episode when Liz can, like, share her details. Um, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Thanks for catching up with us. Thanks for listening. Yes, and we'll catch you next time. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Let's do it again. Okay, let's try this again. How many years have we been doing this now? Hmm. (laughs) Not enough. You know what? You know what? I think we're too hard on ourselves. Let's assume that every podcast edits their ending, too. That's that's very true. That's very true. We're just, we're being very honest by, by letting it hang out like this. Um, yeah, thanks for listening to us. If you're a new listener, if you're an old listener, like the fact that you do this means a lot to us. Hope to meet you guys someday. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Take care of yourselves. Zion says it all. I'm just going to second her.